So as you're seated, let me remind those of you who are volunteers, next Sunday night is our big volunteer Inspire Fall Festival. We're going to have a meal together. We're going to hang out, play some games together, a little bit of worship, a little bit of message. If you volunteer in any capacity at Journey, we'd love to invite you to be a part of that 5 o'clock next Sunday night. We think it will pour life into you um, as gratitude for all the life that you pour into our church when you serve in any capacity that you might serve in. If you have your Bibles today, we're in Philippians chapter 2. We're in the third week of a series in the book of Philippians that we're using to help get us ready for 2024. So our challenge for our church in 2024 is that every person in our church would surrender 1% more of their time to kingdom living for the sake of kingdom movement. We're putting together charts and graphs and all kinds of ways, all kinds of ways that you can plug in 1% of time so that you can have the best spiritual year of your life living for Jesus for the sake of Jesus live in his kingdom moving and living in our world. But we said before we start giving you the details of what to surrender, we want to try to kind of teach the mindset of surrender. What does it look like to have a surrendered life? So we're in eight weeks in the book of Philippians in a series called The Surrendered Life. And what we're trying to figure out how to do is just to get into the mental mindset of leveraging our life for something and someone other than ourselves, for leveraging our life for Jesus and his kingdom. That is the entire purpose of this series. And as we step into message number three of that series today, I'm gonna jump right onto the notes and then I'm gonna ask you two questions. First question I want you to answer publicly. Second question I want you to answer privately. I'll remind you of that so you don't get confused. We're gonna start with what we're gonna head into today. The Apostle Paul is gonna introduce us to some what I call serious saints. He's gonna introduce us to some serious saints, some people who take their faith seriously. So here's my first question. I'd like a public answer to this. Um, how many of you know somebody who even the non-Christian people in your life would look at them and say they take their faith very seriously? Anybody know a serious saint like where, where non-Christian people would say they take their faith very, very seriously? So most of us know somebody like that. Second question, don't answer publicly. How many people would raise their hand to that question because they were thinking of you? How many people would say, I don't know very many Christians, but this person that I know that goes to Journey, I don't even believe what they believe, but I respect how seriously they take their faith. That is going to be the point and some of the purpose of today's message. If you are someone who would be identified as someone who takes their faith really seriously, you might see some things in yourself that we read over today, and you might think, oh, that's, that's why people understand how much I love Jesus. If you're here and you don't take your faith seriously... Or people wouldn't think you do take your faith seriously. I think there's some like extremely practical help in Philippians 2, 12 through 18 that says, here's how you can become someone who appears to be a serious saint, who really takes their faith seriously. Let's read verses 12 and 13. They're such powerful verses. We could stay here for weeks. I can't even stay here a message. I got to get through half a message with this, um, but we'll talk through it. It says in verse 12, therefore, my dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. There is so much in these two verses. Let me give you the high level, and then we'll jump into kind of the specific level. The high level would be this. The Apostle Paul is saying to followers of Jesus, please take your faith spiritually, and please understand your faith deeply. That's the macro. Please take your faith seriously. 
Please understand your faith deeply. But as we get into the micro, we can break apart some words and some sentences here to help us understand. If you have your Bible open, the first word of verse 12 is the word therefore. You need to understand in New Testament scripture, the word therefore is always a transition word that has a clear understanding of the direction given beforehand, which means anytime you read therefore, if you, if you don't comprehend what was just said, what is just getting ready to be said won't even make sense. So when Paul says, therefore, he says, therefore, believing that you and I understand, remember, and are thinking through the lens of Philippians 1.1 through Philippians 2.11, which we've learned over the last two weeks is the Christian view of surrendering our situation and our perspective to Jesus. Paul says, therefore, since, since you are now people who understand the call of your life, is to surrender your situation and perspective. Since you are therefore someone who knows that in every situation of your life, God's in it and God's using it, because you're now a Christian who understands and has the perspective that my life should exalt Jesus and my life should glorify God, because that's who you are and what you now understand, Paul said, I can get on with teaching you now how discipleship and Christianity should work in your life. So he gives us a little perspective and says, since you understand this is what your faith life should look like, he says these words. He says, I want you to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Because you know what to believe, because you know your mission. What should be your behavior and your mindset? You should work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, this phrase is really important, but it's really important that you don't read it wrong. Because this phrase in the right context is massively helpful. This phrase in the wrong context is massively harmful. And it can sound like two different things that mean the exact opposite things. So last Sunday, uh, my wife and I were watching the Chiefs and Jets games with a group of friends. We were trying to get our daughter, Casey, who's 19, to come watch with us. We're like, Case, why don't you come watch a game with us? And she's like, well, I'm trying to figure out who to watch it with. She's like, a lot of friends are getting together, and we're thinking about watching it together with one of our friends because he's getting ready to be deported. And we're like, Case, you got a friend who's getting ready to be deported? She's like, yeah, they're actually deporting his whole unit because he's in the military. And I said, okay, I think... Um, <laughs> I think you mean deployed? She's like, yeah, that's it. And I was like, okay, so those both start with the letters D-E-P, but they're not the same. Like they sound a little bit the same. They're not the same. So unless your friend is that soldier who ran across the border into North Korea, like don't say your military friend is getting deported. He, like he's being deployed. He's not being deported. Sounds the same, not the same. Um, work out your salvation with fear and trembling can sound a couple different ways that are not the same. Here's what you need to understand. Philippians 2.12 is not saying work for your salvation. You have to earn it. You can earn it. It's also not saying at the exact same time, be scared to death that you're going to lose your salvation. It can sound like that, but it, it's not what it says. And not only can it sound like that, it can really feel like that in American culture because our, our American culture of achievement has just kind of overlaid itself onto our theology in a, in a lot of ways. Um, we are a country who not only likes to achieve things and do things, but we like to show it off, right? Have you ever pulled up uh, behind somebody at a red light and you can tell that they've been to every national park that exists like on planet Earth? And you're like, wow, not only have they been there, they want everyone to know that they've been there. Or you walk into somebody and sit next to them at Starbucks and they've got all these stickers on their laptop. And you're like, wow, they've visited a lot of places in the world or they got their water bottle kind of peeled completely. Um, it's our culture of letter jackets. Have you ever seen a letter jacket? 
that somebody's wearing. I had a couple in the early service who asked if they should burn them after the illustrations. Like, no, I wasn't picking on you. I'm just saying, um, letter jackets used to be a thing that represented your school and where you went to school. But if you've seen one recently, now they represent not just where you go to school, but all the good things you've done at that school. Like, man, you get a patch and you can get a, a ribbon and you can get um, a, a pin for just about anything. And a letter jacket no longer screams, this is where I go to school. The letter jacket screams, this is what I've done at my school. Um, because that's our culture, sometimes that's how we think about our faith. Not only do I have faith, look what I've done in my faith. I've got the Bible reading patch. Did you know I was all state last year? In my faith, I read my Bible completely through. That one's up here. And did you see this patch up here? I gave towards the building campaign. So I've got that patch up there for giving towards the building campaign. And this one on my pocket, I went on that mission trip one, one, one time. And like we, we, because we overlay just kind of the American way of achievement on our faith life, um, we really feel like we're doing well in the faith life when we're doing in the faith life. We feel like we're working for our salvation. And at the exact same time, we feel like a failure when we don't have maybe patches that everyone else has. Maybe we weren't first chair in the orchestra. Maybe we didn't get to be the conductor of our marching band. Like maybe, maybe we were in it, but we weren't great at it. You don't see very many people who wear a letter jacket that only represent the school because what they're saying is my school um, and my position on my team at my school doesn't come with a whole lot of achievement, but this is where I go. It is, a, it is a culture of look at where I have been, look at what I have done, look at what I've accomplished. And we kind of, sometimes we, we put that on ourselves spiritually, and there are only two results of having that theology, and they're both bad. The first is pride. The first is look at what I have done as a Christian that makes me a great Christian, rather than look at what Jesus has done as a Christian, uh, look at what Jesus has done to make me a good Christian. So you either have pride, or if you have a car without any bumper stickers, if you have a computer without any stickers, if you get a jacket without any patches, or you feel like the prodigal. Well, I'm kind of on the spiritual team, but I don't do, like, I don't do anything, I'm not a very good Christian. Both of those are focused on you working for your salvation, and what's the worst is like maybe fearing that you've lost your salvation. Both of those place the weight of your salvation on you, and it either makes you pride for or it makes you feel like a prodigal. Neither one of those things are healthy. So instead, what is Paul saying? Philippians 2.12 doesn't say work for your salvation, be scared to death, you'll lose it, but it does say work from your salvation. You've received it, now get to work from it. Use your salvation to exalt Jesus to glorify God. What does Philippians 2.12 say? It does say take your faith walk seriously. Take your faith walk soberly. You now represent a team. You represent team Jesus. You're on the team. Wear the jacket well. You have the jacket. You didn't earn the jacket. Jesus gave you the jacket. But wear it well. Take your faith walk seriously. Back to question number one. Are you a person that people would look at and say, I don't even believe what they believe. But I know they are very, very serious about their faith walk. Paul introduces us to serious saints here and says, take the impact and intimacy of your faith walk seriously. You didn't start it, but since it started in you, your impact and intimacy take those things very, very seriously. Look at what Oswald Chambers says in his great devotional, My Utmost for Us Highest. He said, you didn't do anything to achieve your salvation, but you must do something to exhibit it. Or your speech, your thinking, and your emotions, evidence that you're working it out. 
If you're still the same miserable, grouchy person set on having your own way, it's a lie to say that God has saved you and sanctified you. Strong words. Look at the next one. We are in danger of forgetting that we cannot do what God does, but God will not do what we can do. We must get into the habit of doing things in the initial stages of our faith walk. Be determined to act immediately in faith on whatever God says to you when he speaks and never reconsider or change your initial decisions. Philippians 2.12 does not say you save yourself and you gotta hang on to your salvation. God does that. Philippians 2.12 says because you're saved, you live it out. The perspective that I have because I'm saved is that God is working in me to help me work my salvation out of me. Look at the phrase that Paul uses. He uses the phrase works in you. He said serious saints are going to become effective saints because they're going to always be aware of what God is doing in them. By the way, it's much more valuable for you to see the situation in you than the situation you're in. So many times we look at what's going on around us and we try to base our discipleship on that, but God says, no, 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 I want you to look at what's going on in you. I want you to see what you fear. That will tell you something about your discipleship. I want you to see something that you feel inside you. That will tell you something about your discipleship. I want you to see something about what brings you hope, what brings you security, what brings you peace. I want you to see inside you what frustrates you. I want you to see inside of you what's not there yet. I need you, regardless of what's going on around you, I need you to see how it's impacting inside of you because this will show what God is trying to do in your heart as he works in you. Because he said, God is always using your situation, two powerful words in the Greek language, to will and to act. I call this the best part and the distinguishing part of authentic Christianity, to will and to act. Here's what it means in the English, and then I'll give you a little bit of Greek. It means that God works inside you, regardless of your situation, to desire what he desires and to do what he would do if he were walking around in your skin. You don't reluctantly do what Jesus would do. You actually want to do what Jesus would want you to do, and then you do it. The Greek words are thelo and energo. Thelo means to change someone's mind or heart about something. So Paul said God is going to use your situation, if you look at it in your heart, to change your mind about how you feel about things, to change your mind about what you want to do, to change your mind about what you don't want to do. God literally is going to change how you feel about things and what you think about things. And then after you have done that, that's the word thelo. After you have done that, the word energo is, and then he's going to give you the power to do what you feel like doing. He's going to change how you feel. He's going to change what you desire. And then he's going to give you the power to do it. It is the prayer of Psalm 119.36, where David says, turn my heart towards your statutes. David is literally saying, God, you've asked me to do something I don't want to do. So change my heart, because if you change my heart, then I'll want to do it, and then I can do it. But it's interesting, to will and to act means I'll want to and I can. So look at how this works in Bible reading. I'm not trying to convict anyone. I'm just trying to teach some theology through the lens of Scripture. For the Christian who says, I just don't feel like reading my Bible, that's not theologically true. Christians feel like reading their Bible. Because God has changed our feelings to be his feelings, and his feelings are to spend time with Jesus because in this triune relationship with God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they always want to be together. So it's not theologically correct to say, I'm a Christian, I just don't feel like reading my Bible. Not theologically true because God works in you to will, to want to do the right things. 
For those of you say, I really want to, I just don't have the energy to, also theologically incorrect. Not true. To say, I want to, I just don't ever have time to get around to it. Not true. And there we go. God makes your heart want to do his will, and then he gives you your hands energy to do it. Which means if you're not, you're disobedient. It's not that you lack power. It's not that you lack desire. You just lack obedience. Because if you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit inside you works to will, to want to do what God wants you to do, and to have the energy to do that. You have both of those things inside your spirit. So if you're not, do, if you're not taking your faith seriously, it's not because you can't, it's because you won't. That's what Paul's trying to say. He works in us to will and to act. Why? For his good purpose. That's what Paul says. His purpose for you is that you would exalt Jesus. His purpose for you is that you would bring glory to God in every life circumstance. So Paul said God is working through your situations. If you'll surrender your situation and your perspective, you'll see God has given you the will and the power to do just what he wants you to do so your life will exalt Jesus and glorify God. Paul said this is the win. So I'm sitting in prison, illegally charged, chained to soldiers. But it's a win because my vision frame is... Is what I'm going through, does it allow me to serve Jesus? Yes. Does it allow me to serve the gospel? Yes. Does it allow me to serve other Christians? Yes. Does it allow me to experience discipleship and sanctification that can help disciple and sanctify others? Yes. Paul's like, my life is a win because the purpose of my life, what God's doing in me is more important than what God's doing around me. So he's like, become a serious saint. Take your faith seriously, your heart, your hands, literally the impact of your life will change. He said, you'll be like stars in the sky. That's number two. You'll be like stars in the sky if you do this. Now, I've not flipped out and gone all astrology on you. Let's just keep reading in verses 14 through 18. Paul says, do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you'll shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I'll be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. So Paul says, become a serious saint. And Paul's like, shine like a star in the sky. So I like to look at stars in the sky. But I need you to know what I mean by that and what I don't mean by that. Because we got a guy in our church named Tim who was in our 8 o'clock service who, like, he, he actually really likes to look at stars in the sky. He's got a telescope. He's got a camera. He goes to dark places on planet Earth and takes pictures of nebulas and galaxies and black holes and stars burning out and, like, all these incredible things. He likes to look at stars. Um, I think I confused him one time because in a sermon I said, I like to look at stars, and he brought me a disc of all of his pictures of him looking at stars. And what I should have said is what I mean is when I'm taking my dog out to the bathroom and it's dark out and the stars are out, I'm like, that's cool. Like, that's, that's, that's kind of the extent of it. Like, this morning at 5 a.m. when I was walking rookie around the yard and waiting for him to use the bathroom, I looked up and I was like, man, the stars are really bright. That's what I mean by looking at stars. Now, because of Tim, I'm learning a lot more about them because he's teaching me more things than just, come on, dog, use the bathroom. Um, one of the things I've learned is I've just gone a level deeper is that the stars are out during the day the same way they're out at night. You may have been aware of that because you were a real stargazer. I was not aware of that. I know they're in a different position because of the rotation of the earth, but the stars never go away. The reason we don't see them in the day is because there's a bigger star called the sun. 
and it's brighter than all the other stars, so you can't, when, when, when the sun's star is out, can't see any of the other stars. When the sun's star goes away, then the rest of them come out. This is why, when you think about what Paul is saying, this is why in the church, Christians shouldn't shine like stars in the sky, because like Jesus is here. Like when we walk into this place, it should all be about Jesus, and the radiance and the glory of Jesus should shine so brightly that we're not even looking to each other as an example, we're looking to Jesus. However, Paul's saying, when you go outside the church, and Jesus is like on the other side of the moon from the people in your business and in your school and on your school bus and in the industry that you work in, you should light up around them then. Because they don't have him, they should be enamored with the light that you put off because you're different. And it's interesting, he uses in verses 15 and 16 three kind of assumptive transition words, meaning three words that he assumes are true of every Christian to transition us to the point he's trying to make. He says in verse 15 and 16, so that then and as. So that then and as. He once again is assuming that maturing Christians will have outward actions that contrast with the actions of a broken world. Last week, the word Paul used was since. Not if God has changed you, but since God has changed the inside of your life, your outside should begin to look different. This time he uses different words. Um, Do everything without complaining so that you'll stand out as different. That'll help people understand that Jesus loves you. Um, He he says, hold firmly to Jesus and his word. Then people will know that the ministry of Jesus works. He says, stop arguing about everything as it shows that you actually trust that God is ultimately in charge and you're not trying to redo everything. Like, he uses these words and he gives us these three actions that mature Christians will develop to help people see them and believe they take their faith seriously. What are they? Pretty powerful. Uh, I hope in this service, like last service, some of you feel like I'm talking directly to you. Because that's what I heard a lot after last service. I felt like you preached that message just for me. I actually heard from two husbands who said, I feel like you preached that message just for my wife. So maybe that's your situation, but like any, whatever, regardless of what it is. Action number one, maturing Christians will complain and argue less than immature Christians and non-Christians. Do you know that that is what the Bible says? That maturing Christians, actually what Paul says, will do everything without complaining. Because it it helps people see Jesus in them. Maturing Christians will do everything without complaining because it helps them see Jesus in them. Question, is that true of you? If, um, If we did a scrub of your Facebook the last six months, is that true of you? You know, we had somebody apply for a job in the last month at our church. Um, a pastor, an experienced pastor, apply for our job. And within 20 minutes of looking at his wife's Facebook, our team said, don't even call him for an interview. Because of just the last eight weeks of her complaining on Facebook. I know a lot of you who run industries and interview employees do the exact same thing. Before you ever hit a phone call, you hit social media and say, what kind of person are we dealing with here? Would your social media stand out as different? Because of who Jesus is to you? Paul says maturing Christians, they just complain less than everyone else. Why? I think there's five kind of theological, spiritual growth reasons that maturing Christians complain less. I think the first is God's sovereignty. I think in the big things of life where we, where we have no control, we don't believe things are out of control. We just believe things are under God's control. 
And maturing Christians eventually stop complaining about the big things of life out of their control because they realize when I complain about things I don't control, I'm complaining about things that God controls, and my complaint is saying God got it wrong. God is getting it wrong. God messed up here. So people who begin to mature a little bit spiritually trust in the sovereignty of God enough to, to know this is out of my control but not out of control. Not sure what God's doing, but I trust him. Not even going real well. Paul's in prison, incorrectly in prison, unjustly in prison. He's like, this is out of my control, but it's not out of control. God's in control, so I'm not going to complain. I think on a personal level, an awareness of our own sinfulness helps us not take so many small things personal. Because we look at broken people acting in broken ways towards us, and we think, except for the grace of God, I would do the exact same thing. Or in some cases, we think even with the grace of God, I treated someone, I did the exact same thing to someone three years ago, five years ago, 10 minutes ago. So I think when we kind of step back and we look at our own sinfulness, we say, man, I, surely I don't like how this played out, but I know what's in me. And like this is the Ephesians 6, this isn't the person, not flesh and blood. The problem is sin. So God, I'm just gonna pray against sin. I think thirdly, when you have a decreasing sense of self, this John the Baptist Not everything is about me. Not everything is about my family. Not everything is about my kid. I think when you have this decreasing sense of self, Jesus has to become more, I have to become less. The Apostle Paul, who gave us last week seven layers of self-sacrifice, you gotta lose yourself all the way to the point where Jesus starts being seen. You realize if complaining keeps people from seeing Jesus, I'm just not gonna do, technically my life isn't about me, it's about him. So my decreasing sense of self means that I'm just, I'm, I'm not going to do anything that could distract from who Jesus is. Number four, the Savior's example is that when Jesus stood accused, he was silent like a sheep before its slaughter is. He just trusted God in that moment. And I love number five, the Holy Spirit, I think, is constantly telling us, stop complaining. So I don't know if you know this, this Bible that we had, the 66 books of this Bible, written in three languages, mostly two The Old Testament first 39 books of the Bible written in Hebrew, except for a couple small sections of Daniel and Ezra that were written in Aramaic. The New Testament last 27 books of the Bible written in Greek. We now read it in English. I believe that the Holy Spirit speaks one word in Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek, and English the exact same. Can I tell you that word? I'm going to ask you to say it. You're going to say four languages at the exact same time. Ready? Here's the word. Everybody say, shh. I think in Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek, and English, that sounds the exact same way. And I think if you would have been listening closely last week, you would have heard the Holy Spirit say, shh, just don't complain. Just forget it. Shh, stop. You are distracting people from who Jesus is in you. This week, if you'll listen closely, you will hear the Holy Spirit behind you say, shh. Just leave it alone. Some of you this week, if you stop complaining, you don't even know this about yourself yet, but you complain so much. Some of you this week, if you stop complaining, people are going to ask you what happened, what's wrong with you. It's like, why aren't you talking anymore? Some of you, it'll be to your spouse. Like, like, you won't even talk as a married couple because you'll choose not to complain and you'll realize, oh my gosh, we only talk about things that we're complaining about the entire time. God gave me practice yesterday. I got to learn whether or not I could hear the Holy Spirit say, shh, 
because I was as I was flying home yesterday, I was on row 24 of American Airlines, um, and I texted Danielle and I said, "I'm just giving you the facts. I'm not complaining, but I am surrounded by babies and toddlers, and there's an older couple who has a dog who has not stopped barking for two and a half hours. I'm just facts. I'm not complaining." I'm just giving you facts. And Danielle sent laughy faces back and said, God's trying to get you ready for your message um, tomorrow. <laughs> Thought he is, because it was, it was infuriating with the whole flight. I just felt like God kept saying, shh, just, just, just don't worry about it. Don't complain. Y'all know the complaining dad in the stands at the game, right? If you don't know that he's there, it means it's you, dad. <laughs> Everyone is joining with the Holy Spirit thinking, shh, just stop. Don't do that. Paul says, if you just get this one thing right, if you stop complaining, you look different than everyone else in the world. I met a man in tears uh, in our atrium today whose dad has passed, but he said, you know, in 40, 50 years of life, I never heard my dad complain about anything. He didn't complain about gas prices. He didn't complain about the president. He didn't complain about taxes. I never, he said, I can honestly say I never once heard my dad complain about anything. And he said, my kids cannot say that about me. I want to get better. Man, me too. I want to get better. Action number two. We read that maturing Christians hold firmly to the unchanging word of God and the gospel in an ever-changing culture. So Paul says, hold firmly to the word of life. I'd like to spend more time here than I have time to spend. Let me just say this. A couple weeks ago, we were meeting with one of our Scotland ministry partners. Scotland has literally walked away from the orthodox belief in the authority of God in Scripture. And one of the, our elders asked the pastors, how did th- how'd this happen so quick? And he said, there, there was a moment in time where our church, the Church of Scotland, had to make the decision, um, do we figure out how to be what culture wants us to be and how to say what culture wants us to say so that we can have the chance to reach culture or do we stay on the word of God? And we decided we could not hold on to the authority of God's word and be a part of the culture and they made the decision, if we're gonna reach culture, we've gotta be in the culture so we'll just change what the word of God says. And he said, now 50 years later, the culture is worse and the church is gone. It hasn't worked. I, I got off the plane yesterday flying from Lynchburg to Kansas City through Charlotte, and when I, when I got off my gate, they had a huge uh, mural on the wall advertising the Billy Graham uh, Library that was 4.8 miles from the Charlotte airport. And it had a big picture of Billy preaching in 1956, I think, in Los Angeles at the big crusade that launched his ministry. And I thought, man, Billy didn't have the spiritual impact he had by joining what was happening in the sex, drugs, rock and roll culture of Woodstock. He stood against it, and God allowed him to help pull people out of that. I think about C.S. Lewis, who didn't give in to the ideology of Nazi Germany, but he stood against it during World War II. I think about Martin Luther during the scientific revolution, not giving in to the scientists, but pulling people back to the word of God. The church fathers of the Middle Ages, medieval times, pulling people back to the word of God. I think about the Apostle Paul not trying to say, what do we need to say so Rome will accept us? But just saying what was true so people could accept Jesus. When we compromise the word of God, we lose any chance to reach the culture with the power of God, amen? So Paul says, hold firmly to the word of life. And then he says, action number three, I love this. Maturing Christians need less credit, take less credit, and give themselves less credit for ministry the longer that they're in it. He says in verse 17, even if my life is poured out as a drink offering, in the Jewish system of sacrifice, literally all the ministry would be done on the altar and they would have these bottles of wine 
that they would pour on the fire that had almost burnt out. They would pour it on the fire. Paul says, my ministry is nothing compared to what Jesus has done. But if I can just be the last thing that shows up to be faithful, I'm good with that. Maturing Christians need less credit, take less credit. They're looking for less credit the longer they serve in ministry. They just are happy to be faithful in the movement of God and what he is doing. As you think about what it would take for you to go from where you are to be seen as a serious saint, someone who takes their faith seriously, which one of these things that I've mentioned today could be a growth area for you? And would you this week work really, really hard to take that growth step and just see if people begin to notice you like a star in the sky on a really dark night? As we close our service, our questions will scroll and then I'll come close us in prayer. But listen and receive these questions with an open mind, open heart. Answer honestly, turn those answers into prayers and ask God to begin to do something in you so that people see you as someone who takes their faith seriously. It's a priority in their life and someone who stands out because they've surrendered complaining, not gonna do that anymore. They've surrendered compromise. I believe the word of God. They've surrendered taking credit. Don't care who gets the credit as long as people end up looking towards Jesus. God, as we get ready to just reflect on these questions, speak to our hearts, tell us what steps we need to take, and then give us courage to repent where needed and take steps where needed to mature. In Jesus' name, amen.